Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It has been said, mainly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can be playing right now that can take up our hobby time or our hobby dollars. It can be hard to know what to play next. Um, there are just literally too many games, and it can lead to a serious, uh, serious and stressful case of fear of missing out. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast, is to have people on to talk about the games that they've enjoyed playing, um, the authors that write those games, and industry events and uh, different places where people get together to play these games, be them conventions or tournaments or events or whatever else. Um, now, I am very happy this week to bring on someone who I have been following for quite a while, um, online and i'm very happy to have on uh, someone who who is not only prolific online but is also a passionate player of a game that i love and hold dear warlords of erewhon uh a g game that i think is criminally underrepresented um online and uh, i think just a lot of people need to check out so anyway uh before we go any further let's let's int introduce our guests uh a man who is definitely not new to online communities, especially on YouTube and uh, all things Facebook. Of course, I'm talking about Travis and his wonderful channel, Tabletop CP, on YouTube. Um, and he is also a regular contributor to videos on Paint All the Minis. Travis, welcome to Cast Ice, man. Thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it is a pleasure. Now, before we get started... Can you tell us a little bit about Tabletop CP? Because I've watched quite a few videos uh, of Warlords of Erewhon games, but those aren't just the games that you do. I mean, you also do Bolt Action. Um, I know you've been getting into Spectre. Um, talk to us about the channel, how it started, and what sort of games you guys do. Well, we started out, uh, we were called Bolt Action CP because we, we only played Bolt Action. When we started branching out, we got into Chain of Command, we got into Sharp Practice. So I changed the name of the channel to Tabletop CP, so mm -hmm. it'd be a little bit more all-encompassing than just Bolt Action, because I had mm -hmm. some people tell me they were skipping over most of the uh, Lardy games that we did because they saw Bolt Action CP and they weren't looking for that. So mm -hmm. uh, we changed the name, we've added a bunch of new games, uh, Sharp Practice, Chain of Command, Spectre, and of course World War of Erewhon, and... We're putting out about a video a week, sometimes two, especially this time of year with the holidays, and uh, just having a lot of fun doing it. Nice. Now, you say we, but um, most of the ones I've seen are sort of driven by you. Are you sort of uh, the man behind the channel? Uh, I know you have a regular cast of guests. Um, I recognize quite a few voices and names uh, and armies when you're playing, but um, most of these things are recorded by you personally, right? Right. Yeah, I do all the recording. Um, I painted all the models, all the terrains mine. Um, I pretty much have done all the, the hard work and I just have my friends come over for the uh, for the fun times. Nice. Well, man, I have to say, if you have not checked out Tabletop CP, guys, uh, definitely check it out because not only are the battle reports solid, um, but the tables are gorgeous. Um, they I mean, that's one thing that, you know, sometimes if you watch YouTube battle reports can be a real bummer is that you look at the tabletop and either the terrain can be really nice, um, but the armies aren't painted or vice versa that, you know, the armies are gorgeous, but the tabletops, you know, just a flat tabletop with like some books with a little bit of a cloth over the top. But you have both. You have the total package of, you know, really nicely painted models. 
um, combined with, you know, thematic boards that match the missions. And it, it really does tell a narrative and it makes the game interesting. Um, so, yeah, man, hats off to you, because as someone who's trying to get into that myself, uh, I looked at yours and went, oh, man, yeah, I can learn some things here. And I've been taking notes. Great stuff. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Yeah, it's a it's it's a lot of work, but it's worth it. And we've been really getting into more narrative type uh, campaigns lately between Spectre and um, Chain of Command, especially. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where we're where we're headed is more narrative based campaigns instead of one off games. Nice. Nice. Well, another thing I've noticed a lot when you're watching battle reports is there tends to be sort of two camps. Um, one, if you're watching a battle report, it can be sort of a short summary of a game um, that sort of glosses over a lot of the minutia to speed things up and to make it interesting for maybe shorter attention spans and to make it maybe a little bit easier to tell as a narrative. Um, or the people who um, run the entire game from start to finish, which is kind of what I do, um, because you want to, you know, show the game itself. You want to show the mechanics. You want to show the flavor. You want to show what it's actually like to play that game. Um, and I think you do a really good job of sort of threading the the needle between the two, um, because you have, especially in the initial turns when it's just jockeying for position, um, you sort of do jump cuts and you say, well, here we're going to go. You know, now we're just going to do our movement. And then everything moves, and then you explain what's happened, and it goes way faster, and it cuts down the, the speed, or sorry, the, uh, the, the length of your video. But it also, when you get into those important roles, you're showing everything. So people really do still get the feel for the game. Was that something that you sort of came with through trial and error, or how did that come about? Yeah, basically trial and error. We first started out. Our first few uh, bolt action battle reports were the summary type, where we would summarize, you know, the end of each turn, what happened, mm -hmm. and then we started trying to film more. And just through trial and error, I've just kind of stumbled upon a good format where we leave out most of the movement because that's pretty boring. Mm -hmm. But we will always show if there's a movement that's important to the game, we'll show it. But generally, we'll skip the, the movement, just summarize movement, and the shooting is what. Um, people mainly want to see. So yeah. that's something that we always show or any kind of, I'm sorry, <clears throat> any kind of important role, mm -hmm. uh, like a morale test or anything like that is going to be on the, on the video. Uh, other than that, uh, yeah, I just stumbled upon it pretty much. Nice. Well, I'm a big fan, man. I think you do it well. I might try and, uh, try and shorten down some of my, especially in those, as I said, in those initial <clears throat> turns, it really does help speed the game up. If you just say, okay, well, here I'm about to move everything, and now you do. And I guess Warlords of Erewhon is good for that at the beginning, in particular because quite a few armies have the follow rule where you're able to move multiple units at once, um, like the snap two order in bolt action, So, if, except even more so. So you're able to move a large swath of your models at once, and if you can say, hey, I'm about to use this, and then move everything, and then you do, it's much faster. Anyway, um, how, how did you find... Warlords of Erewhon. I mean, did you just see Rick Priestley, see Warlord putting it out if you're already playing bolt action? Or did someone tell you about it? How did you how did you get into the game? Well, I, I read about it when it was first coming out. It didn't really get a lot of... It kind of just popped up one day. Right. And it was out, out the next, which was very odd for us. And mm -hmm. um, uh, Dan at Paint All the Minis was... Uh, he wanted someone from the group to to do to do a report on it and uh, i volunteered to do it so i got the starter box and i painted it all up 
and I started playing. And I just fell in love with it. Yeah, man, it's a great system, isn't it? It's really nice. Yeah, I mean, you you sort of come at it, uh, the way you came at it, it's sort of different from a lot of the people who I regularly play with. Most of the guys I play with um, are also bolt-action players, um, typically, but they also have come in from a very fantasy-centric um, point of view. Like, they have a lot of armies um, from old gaming systems, Warhammer Fantasy being usually largely the largest of that. Um, but you came from a historical background. You came from... I mean, just bolt action. You didn't have that um, historic. I mean, you didn't have that fantasy background to your gaming. So, how are you finding that? Because I mean, it is a catch-all game for all things fantasy. But if you didn't have that fantasy, I mean, I guess fantasy's hot enough that you know it's not alien to you. But how was that process for you? Well, yeah, like you said, I didn't have any fantasy models at all. So when I got that starter box, that was all I had, mm-hmm. and I know the kind of the main thrust of the game was for people who had large fantasy armies sitting on a shelf somewhere, they could mm-hmm. get those models out and immediately start playing. So since I didn't have that, I had to paint up the starter box. I came with the skeletons. It came with the orcs. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was all I had. And I decided after I played a few games that I liked it enough that I wanted to start expanding. And I just started buying you know, models to supplement the, well, mainly the skeletons mm-hmm. to uh, build up my undead army. And the beauty of it was I could find models anywhere. I yeah. mean, I found a $4 uh, Reaper model at the game store and that's now my headquarters. I mean, yeah. it's literally any model you find anywhere that matches, you know, somewhat remotely the description in the book, you could throw it in your army. Yeah, man. Yeah, I've been slowly acquiring undead models because it's one of the armies that I would love to do um, because I love the aesthetic, but I don't currently own. And so I've been sort of pulling together sort of GW um, skeletons with um, some of the character models as in sort of the armored skeletons from ancient GW ranges and combining that with some of the armored skeletons from Frostgrave and, um, you know, wraith models from different places. And I've been looking at the heresy models, uh, miniatures, ghouls to add in. And there's just, I mean, you start looking at things and it's astonishing how things sort of come together even though they're made by different people and in some cases they're slightly different scales it sort of all works um because it doesn't have to be the same does it it doesn't i have uh, several uh, games workshop skeleton models in my army the knights um i got some of the uh i don't know what they're called in games workshop but they're sort of a armored skeleton mm-hmm. built a squad of those to be my skeleton guard mm-hmm. they look the part i mean they have oh yeah all have armor and they're all carrying well i gave what the weapons are carrying i don't know if they're what they exactly are but i'm using them as halberds, halberds yeah so it's yeah so i have those um the games the uh uh warlord game skeletons which mm-hmm. they get a bad rep and they are a little bit fiddly to put together but once they're together they look really nice yeah very easy to paint oh yeah and yours look nice, too. I mean, that's the great thing about skeletons. Given the technology of painting these days, and especially if you're an established painter, they're really not that bad to do. Um, I remember as a kid picking up skeletons going, oh, this is going to be easy, and it being terrible. Um, but, you know, back then I wasn't priming models properly. Washing right. was a very different env- you know, environment, and my dry brushing was 
terrifyingly bad. So, uh, you know, throw a few basic painting techniques and, you know, decent GW washes these days, and man, they come together a treat, don't they? Oh, very fast. Yeah, I could probably knock out five or six of those in one night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, let's talk Warlords of Erewhon then, because um, when when it came out, I had Rick on the Warlord cast, and we talked about sort of sort of a general pulled back look at the game, and we sort of talked about some of the armies that came out. And you know, I've had Rick on, and I've had Dave Monroe on a few times in the past, and we've talked about what we like about the game, um, but we never really got into all of the, I don't want to say the minutia of the rules, because I think that may not make for interesting listening, but um, let's, let's start with a pulled back view and sort of dig in a little bit and talk about maybe some of the mechanics that really make this game special. Um, so for those who are not familiar, um, if you are familiar with bolt action, you will be familiar with the sort of the order dice mechanic. And uh, Warlords of Erewhon uses that mechanic as well. Uh, however, um, even though you're using the exact same order dice from bolt action, they, they do operate slightly differently. Um, for example, if, um, if you put a down order on a model, that is because it's usually failed an order test of some kind. Um, now, what's really nice about Warlords of Erewhon is at the end of the turn, you don't just pull it up. You actually have to pass a morale check to get rid of that down order, um, which you know really does make down uh, more significant uh, as far as you know it being bad because you can actually be stuck down multiple turns but it doesn't feel hopeless like in bolt action first edition when you had too many pins and you have a model that never goes anywhere because you can rally models around it to pull it off Um, i guess that's another thing is that rally can be used by models um, to remove pins from you know models that are next to them you can help a mate it isn't like you're just trying to rally yourself Um, before i get into too many of the other differences though um, what do you think about the way that those rules work um, in comparison to bolt action or just in general on the tabletop? Well, it makes going down voluntarily pretty much not an option. Right. Because there's a chance you won't get up. And if you don't get up and you get attacked, then the enemy is going to be swinging and getting you first. Because yeah. normally in this game, it's always simultaneous no matter what, except right. if the target is down. So it's a severe disadvantage to be down when you get charged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah, that's a very good point. It you really don't want to be charged when you're down because, yeah, um, yeah as you say, simultaneous combat really makes a big difference um, as far as how combat works. And if if you're going second, that's that's a bad situation. People are just going to pile the pins on you and pile the hits um, because in hand to hand combat, every time you take a wound, you take a pin, um, and pins are used for combat resolution. So if you get piled on early, that's just going to make you miserable. Um, and yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a big hill to overcome. Yeah, you're probably not going to win the combat if you are only swinging with half your guys. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, um, let's talk a little bit about movement then, because I know this is something that some people find a little controversial at times. Now, if you uh, if you order a unit to run, just like in bolt action, you basically double your movement. However, you have the option of a third kind of movement. If you give a run order, you can sprint. Um, and that means you can move three times your movement, which makes armies very fast. You can get up in somebody's face very quickly. 
Um, but the downside of that is you actually have to pass a test. And if you fail, um, you take a pin. Um, now, if you're going for that long bomb charge and you're getting in there, as we said, pins are bad to have going into combat. And if you're charging you know, halfway across the board and, you, and then you fail that test, you're, you're going to be... You're going to be giving yourself a pretty big disadvantage. Well, not a big, but a disadvantage going in, um, which I think balances out really nicely. Yeah, it does. And it's also um, bad if you do that, even if you don't make it into combat, because that pin could cause you to fail a uh, test and you Mm -hmm. could go down. Because that's happened to me multiple times. Mm -hmm. I sprinted. I took a pin. The next turn, I tried something. I failed. I went down. Mm -hmm. And... That unit was out of the game for like two or three turns based off that one pin I got for failing that agility test on the yeah. sprint. Yeah, and, and it, most agilities tend to be around six. Um, I know five sort of baseline for the game, uh, at least a lot of the armies I've played. So you're testing, and so you're probably, you have a 50-50 chance sort of of failing that. And if you do, you know, as you say, you take that pin. And so it's that gamble. Um, do you try and do that? And if you are sprinting with one or two models, sorry, units, um, charging out in front of your army to sort of get in there, um, you can be, I mean, and that squad that you're talking about being stuck out there down all of a sudden is out of position with the rest of the army, and it can just be punished, um, especially if your opponent has some shooting and they can just pile those pins on. As you say, you can be stuck because you won't have the friends around them to rally. Right. Yeah. That unit could be uh, toast for that game. I think that happens to you. Yeah. Big time. Um, do you, do you want to add anything about how movement works? I mean, I really like how fluid and flexible the movement feels on the tabletop. I feel like you can really, I mean, a lot of good war gaming comes down to how you move, um, and how you deploy and how you interact with your opponent across the tabletop to achieve objectives. And I really like that this game for a fantasy game, which isn't, you know, isn't always famous for, um, you know, maneuvering being a big part of it. I think that this is, is a great example of a game where movement is, you know, it has a downside, but you have that movement to move around and it really makes the game interesting. Yeah, I do like the movement. I like there's three different uh, ways you can move. You can just move normally. You can run, you can sprint. And it's a game that does tend to uh, lead to a lot of maneuvering, a lot more than you would think for a fantasy game, like you said. Mm. But there's also downsides to doing a lot of this stuff, too. So it's not a gimme, you know, I'm going to just sprint everyone up as far as I can. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could do that, but there's, you're gonna, you could possibly take some pins. And there's been many of a fight I've been in where that one extra pin was the difference. So it's a, uh, definitely a, a risk to sprint around the board. Yeah, and you wouldn't think that one pin would make a big difference, but man, <laughs> man does oh, it. Does. It, it does. does. And just like bolt action happens, you know, the old adage, uh, man, Warlords of Erewhon definitely happens sometimes too. Uh, you, you know, you just go, oh, this shouldn't happen. All I need, you know, if I roll a 10, then this, you know, that will happen. Boom, 10. Yep. Oh, happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was watching um, your most recent battle report right before we recorded today, uh, and I, I was like, "Oh yeah, you know this, you know, four attacks on a cyclops, the, you know, a giant monster. There's no way that you know that guy's gonna, you know, even if it hits, it'll just be a little scratch. Not, you know, takes no. a pile of pins and then is taken out of the game by you know a lucky shot the next turn, and you go, oh, yeah, that that happens. 
Warlords yeah, that of Erewhon happens. That was painful, man. It was uh, a fiery balls attack mm-hmm. uh, that does double. It does an extra pin. Yeah. And I had to roll anything but a 10. Mm-hmm. And I rolled a 10. And it did a bunch of uh, pins because I had to roll on the monster damage chart. And it dropped my resist. And it was just a avalanche of bad things. And then I just got obliterated by a lance from a uh, skeleton knight. And that was mm-hmm. the first time that... Uh, my Cyclops has ever been killed. And you've used him a lot. It's not like he's just shown up for the first time on the tabletop. I think I've seen him in at least a couple of videos, at least three, right? Yeah, I've used him a lot. I had to stop bringing him um, intentionally because he was just too powerful. He was just dominating the game. So we kind of limited the uh, big monsters and figured it was time to get him out again. And yeah, that's what happened. Right on. Well, another well, let's get into monsters in a second. But another big mechanic that, if you're used to that dice mechanics um, that Bolt Action has, that is similar but very different, is ambush. Um, now, ambush is basically kind of like you're putting a squad sort of on pause. Um, you're not saying, "Well, I'm going to use these guys later." I mean, you're kind of waiting for your opponent to interact into you, which in a way is similar to bolt action. But it it means that if, for example, um, I have a unit of horsemen that are charging into a unit of dwarf handgunners, and this may have been in my last game, um, and my opponent had a, a unit of dwarf warriors sort of to the side of those handgunners, when my horsemen charged in, the the warriors who were on um, ambush then were able to test and um, they passed their leadership check and they were able to get and intervene between the two units. So I wasn't able to charge the handgunners. I had to charge the warriors instead. And I think that, again, leads to some really interesting tactical decisions on the tabletop because it means, oh, well, how do I, you know, do I risk getting in here knowing that I could get smashed in the side? And by the same token, my opponent isn't moving those warriors forward by keeping them in ambush, he's sort of being static, but it also, you know, again, it leads to, ooh, do I do this? Do I do this? And it, in the way that you interact with your opponent on the tabletop, um, though fairly simple to start with, can get fairly complex when you start playing, you know, running your mind through all of the, uh, through all the possibilities of what could happen. And yeah, I think it's really cool. Yeah, it leads to a lot of choices, which is something that makes a good game, I, I think, is multiple choices um, and just, you know, do I do it? Do I do not do it? Um, yeah, but the reactions, they are different in that it's not automatic like in bolt action. Mm-hmm. You know, bolt action and ambush happens. You have to actually pass a, uh, a test in exactly. arrow one, which... Again, it's not a gimme, so it's Mm-mm. do I I can put them on ambush, but that doesn't mean they're actually going to be able to do it, uh, do what I want them to do when the time comes. Right. So, yeah, it it is very much again. It there's there's elements of uh, risk and gambling, um, you know, which if all the dice go bad in a total game, can occasionally feel bad. But um, as long as you're remembering that you're playing for fun and not for sheep stations, I don't think is a big deal. Um, and you know, luck tends to even out when you're playing. So. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I like it a lot. I think it, it's a really, you know, some really neat mechanics in there. Um, and it, and it does have an, it feels familiar enough if you're a long time bolt action player, but it definitely has its own identity. Um, and you know, the more you sort of dig into the rules after you play it a couple of times, the more you realize it really does have an individual flavor that makes it special. 
It does. And the another thing with the reactions too is it's uh, it's uh, there's a 20 inch bubble that yes. you can react in, which that itself adds even more layers to the complexity of you know, when you decide, am I going to go on to ambush? Am I going to not go on to ambush? I mean, are they going to get within 20? I mean, if you're going on ambush with archers, it's a lot different than going on ambush with, you know, swordsmen. So right. it's, it's definitely a pretty deep tactical layer to the game, I think. And I think it, uh, I honestly, I can say I don't actually use it that much, but there are times that I do use it. And I think last night's game i used it uh because there was gonna be outflankers coming in off the edges mm -hmm. and i had units on the edges and i was within charge range of my guys so if anyone were to come in i could have immediately charged them they can't charge coming in but right. i could have charged them because i'm on ambush so mm -hmm. it's a good way to uh, deny um deny deployment areas to the enemy by having guys on ambush in that area yeah man it makes a hell of a deterrent doesn't it it does Nice. Now, um, let's talk about some of the things that um, I guess for me, I love that there the book itself comes with what eleven army lists um, and a giant list of monsters that you can add to any list. Um, but then on top of that, Rick has put out a ton of additional armies and updated all of the army lists at least once through his website. So, I mean, what started out as being a game that had fairly general army lists, like there's one elf list that you could use for wood elves, for high elves, for dark elves, for, you know, drow, for whatever your particular flavor of elf is, um, that, 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 that list works. I mean, for having a huge number of army lists that are as inclusive as that, all of a sudden, you know, the fact that he keeps putting out these lists means that the number of you know, different forces you can put on a tabletop is astonishing. Um, and given that this is sort of a one and done game, as in there's not going to be a ton of extra, uh, you know, there isn't a constant list of new army lists coming out. Everything is sort of leveled to start with. We're not having codex creep. I just think it's really exciting that we have so many lists and those lists keep coming and the lists themselves are super inclusive. It just makes this game special. Would you agree? I definitely agree. Yeah, the list, when I first opened the book, I'm like, man, this is half of the book is, is just armies. Mm -hmm. And and each army has tons of different uh, units. And like you said, the monsters are their own thing. You can make an army of monsters if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. You can include any monster into any list. Uh, you can put guys on top of monsters <laughs> if you want. Mm -hmm. So it's, I mean, there are endless possibilities for, you know, even if you're mod modeling uh you're converting models, you can mm -hmm. convert a uh, work onto a Tyrannosaurus Rex or yes. whatever. <laughs> whatever you want to do, you can do it. And, and pretty much every, so pretty much anything you want to do, you can do it. Yeah, man. I love, um, I love that A, it's inclusive. So you can sort of take whatever you want and put it on the tabletop. But I think that, I think in a game like this, when I first started, I was just grabbing models out of a drawer and throwing them down and having a great time. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I really wanted some some narrative. I wanted some story. And so um, I've started to dig into my forces and trying to theme things a little bit more. And I, I think that um, once I started doing that, uh, once I got past just figuring out how to build the army, um, I was able to have some fun with it. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, you know, a well-rounded force to have a good time in this game. You can have a really good time. 
um, coming up with a theme and then putting it together. And it, you know, it could be a theme based on fluff for another game if you want to take like plague rats or, you know, whatever else. But it is, I think that the missions and the way that the, the armies interact on the tabletop really does help you to um, play out that narrative. And yeah, it's just, it's great. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and like I said earlier, narrative is, is a big thing with us. We enjoy doing narrative games, and lately as we've played more of Warlords of Erewhon, we've been adding more and more narrative into that. Mainly it's just a kind of a, a beginning uh, starting point for the game we're about to play, but eventually we'll get into mini campaigns for the game that the narrative continues on from game to game. Nice. Nice. Well, let's talk a little bit about your personal experiences with the game. Now, um, you... <laughs> As you said, you've been starting with Undead, and you've been sort of branching out into other armies. Let's talk about the Undead for a minute, because they're a really interesting, fun list that sort of breaks some of the rule mechanics in the way that um, how they don't units don't break because they're dead, but um, you're sort of limited in other ways, too. Um, how do you like the Undead list? I love the Undead lists. I think it's the best list in the book. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of their main strengths is their headquarters is their magic user as well mm -hmm. so you don't have to spend extra points on having a wizard on top of everything else that's true that's true now uh, from personal experience when i play this game speaking of uh you know warlords of Erewhon happening um the number of times i've miscast with my wizard and have him disappear off the table in some spectacular fashion either he's been poofed off into a you know a a vortex and zipped out to another you know dimension or you know he has to literally leave the table and come back on again like he's t he teleported himself just out of the battlefield and he has to run back on on foot um i don't know if i want my general being the same but uh yeah yeah well i had mine turn into a toad not that long ago mm. that was interesting yeah yeah again you can't get that upset though when it happens you go well you know i knew this was happening right yeah it's but you make a good point if you're if your general is your wizard and you miscast and something bad happens as and on top of that the undead have a special rule that if their general dies you can't remove any more pins from any of the units you have right. left on the board which pretty much ends your game yeah, and it's one of those things where after combat, pins don't disappear, they stay. And so pins really do matter because once you've reached your sort of leadership role for this, you die. Um, and a lot of the leadership characteristics for the game are eight. Um, so uh, you can you can go pretty quick if, once the pins start piling on. And unlike in bolt action, when you're fighting hand-to-hand -hand combat, it, at the end, the loser um, has to take a check and when they pass, or sorry, if they fail, they take D6 extra pins. Right, more um, pins. Yeah, man. And that those pins add up. And then, again, you take those pins, you hit that leadership value, you're dead. And that's um, pretty much uh, how the undead die is they mm -hmm. pin out. Since they can't route, they generally will disappear just through the amount of pins. That's right. That's right. But Undead do have some some cool tools. I mean, I know that sometimes when people talk about this game, they mention, um, I know at least locally, a lot of people talk about how powerful dwarves are because um, getting through armor can sometimes be an issue um, if you don't have the right sort of tech, quote unquote, to deal with it. Right. But uh, the Undead do have that tech. I mean, there's a number of um, a number of units that can bypass armor. 
because of, you know, chill touch or chill wind, the spell, or I suppose everyone's got access to that, but it thematically matches the undead. Um, Actually, the undead are the only ones that can take that spell. Oh, are the, they? I missed yeah, that. Yeah, uh, you have to have the undead word in your rules in order to take that chill wind. Oh, so not even a necromancer can use it. I, I guess, yeah, I guess he, he wouldn't be able to. He's not okay. technically undead. Oh, interesting. Hmm. I missed that when I was reading the rules last night because I was thinking, why have I never taken this spell before? And that would I be just, why. Yeah, I actually just learned that myself the other night because I was looking to give that to that rule to the barbarian shaman. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at the rule and it said you have to have undead. Um, yeah, I usually um, use fireball, but only because um, I, I love the idea of what was that old um, bad, an audio joke of people playing D&D and there's a guy who says, I shoot magic missile at the darkness. And so I was like, well, the closest thing you can get to a magic missile in this game is fireball. So right. I'm just going to shoot fireballs at the darkness. Um, then fiery I figured balls. out that, yeah, fiery balls, I'm going <laughs> to shoot them all. But then... Um, yeah, just having the uh, just the ability to throw in that extra pin really can help. Uh, if you can't get past the armor, add the pins, and you know sometimes that'll that'll make all the difference. And that's another thing that makes the undead really good is they're pretty much resistant to all of those type of rules. Fire, if they're if they're mm-hmm. spectral undead, they're resistant to fire. They're resistant to um, dread, yeah. terror. Uh, mm-hmm. They just pretty much ignore everything. That said, they are expensive. Um, yeah, you don't get be. as many of them as other people. But um, yeah, I did. I, I took Undead to a recent, uh, well, I guess it was a, an event a while ago. Um, and I took my old uh, eyeball army and I ran them as a spectral undead army because they were just floating around like floating eyeballs that were shooting, you know, energy right. out of them. Don't ask. It's a bizarre concept. But um <laughs> Just having the entire army be that, and I had, you know, reasonable size squads, but um, if you have the raise deads um, spell, if the squad's small enough, you can beef them up, because units can't go over a certain size in Erewhon, but having that spell, they can. Yeah, um, that's a very powerful spell. I think we've been talking about locally here coming up with a limit to that because it's yeah. quite potent yeah look in a couple games it didn't make a difference whatsoever um but in a couple of games my army basically doubled in size and i went yeah maybe that's not great um yeah but yeah it's a little discouraging to your opponent <laughs> yes uh yes especially since yeah, i had these guys killed now they're all back what the hell yeah exactly <laughs> or in this case it wasn't even they had me killed as my opponent was coming across the tabletop at me, it was like, oh, uh, I'm supersizing my army while you're getting closer. How you doing? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, once again, once per squad. And I was getting very lucky with the rolls and, you know, rolling maximum growth size. So it was just, you know, dudes were just sprouting out of everywhere. But yeah, but yeah. It's very thematic, though. It is. It's super thematic and it feels right. Um, maybe not great if you're facing it, but it does feel right. Right. Oh, totally. Just guys crawling out of the ground. Yeah, I can totally see that happening. That's right. Well, let's talk about, um, I guess if we're talking elephants in the room, let's also talk about the monsters. Um, Now, the heavy armor, there are are ways to get around that. There are um, units that have rules to get past that. But monsters have a special set of rules. Now, Rick has said specifically on this podcast and in the book itself 
that um, he doesn't necessarily recommend monsters for uh, theme or sorry for uh, games with you know level playing fields like they tend to throw things out they're more there for fun um, but man they are fun but they they have multiple order dice meaning that they get to activate multiple times per turn so you don't get the like that tiger one feel from bolt action where you have one big lumbering behemoth that does one thing a turn and if it misses well that turns done and it's a huge amount of points the monsters in this game are expensive um, often the, the cost of a squad or two of guys, but because they can activate possibly two, occasionally three times in a turn, they can really lay down the hurt. Now, I haven't used them very much for that reason. I tend to play infantry uh, with chariots and war machines and cavalry, um, but you've used monsters a lot. Would you agree that they're really strong? Is there anything... Talk to us about it, man, because you have way more experience than I do. I would definitely agree. Monsters are very powerful. Well, first of all, there's two different types of monsters. you got the monstrosities. Those are the big monsters you're talking about, the multiple order dice. Mm -hmm. There's also smaller monsters that have a single order dice. Mm -hmm. Those are, they are powerful, but they aren't game-breaking powerful like a dragon or a cyclops or something like that. So it's something that you definitely have to agree upon, at least I do. If I'm going to play someone, uh, you got to let them know. I'll bring in a monster mm-hmm. or that'll give them a chance to bring a monster or at least set up a list that they can bring something that can kill a monstrosity. Right. For example, the giant scorpions, they're my favorite monstrosity killers because they have those two or they each have a stri- uh, strike value 10 venomous attack, mm-hmm. which can pretty much kill. If you can get into, if you can charge into combat with the giant scorpions against the monster, you can take them down. In one yeah. turn. Because once you get past that initial sort of uh, resistance or, you know, sort of if we're going to talk for the layman toughness test, once you can get through them, if you can get a hit on them, just like an armored vehicle and bolt action, once you roll on the damage table, um, you know, you can really lay down the herd on those guys um, and or just right. outright kill them. Yeah, or like we were saying, the pins. You could add a lot of pins to them quite quickly. True. As most of those on the monstrosity damage table... I think almost all of them, except maybe if you roll a one, add D3 plus one pins. Mm-hmm. And that and makes that's a where huge you start, difference. That's yeah. where you start slowing them down uh, is by adding all those pins. And a lot of the monsters, surprisingly, don't have really high command. Mm-hmm. Like a Cyclops is an eight. Uh, most of them are sevens. Basilis, mm-hmm. Basilis Chimeras, Cockatrice, all sevens. Mm-hmm. Uh, even a dragon's only a nine. So they can be pinned out. And if you get enough hits or you... You make them roll enough on that monstrosity damage table, you can destroy them just by pinning them out. Well, if they get enough pins on them at the end of combat, if they are if they have more pins than their opponent, then they have to ch- you know check to see if they failed combat. And if they do, they then take d6 additional pins. So I right. mean that compounds quickly. So on one hand, I think it's the same thing that Rick said about chariots. They can be unstoppable and they can really ruin your day if you're facing them. But they can also be incredibly fragile if you just get past them once. Um, they can. So, and again, it can just be a random roll of a 10 to get past it, and it works. Um, yep. So yeah, Make them I roll mean, enough. Mm-hmm. I've, I've lost a, uh, a chariot to a goblin and just gone, oh, <laughs> how the crap did that happen? Like I charged, I think, four goblins, and it, it happened to, they happened to get past the armor on the chariot, and the chariot capsized and blew up. And you went, well, there you go. And that's one of the beauties of the uh, the 10 is an auto fail 
Because no matter what the uh, resist of a monster is, if they roll a, a zero or a ten, I call it a zero, but it's yeah, a ten. It's a ten, yeah. Then they're rolling on that table. Absolutely. So it's one of the things I have learned about monsters is uh, don't rush them up too fast. They seem invincible, but as we were just saying, if you get enough, if you have to roll enough times on the uh, resist, um, if you have to roll enough saves, you're going to fail one eventually. Yeah, I, I watched in one of your games that you had some berserkers charge up, and one of the one of the rules that berserkers has means that until they lose combat, they doubled their number of attacks, and you charged, I believe it was a flesh golem, and by charging them and just getting enough hits, like you rolled something like 14 dice the first time and didn't actually cause any damage, um, but the second time you rolled it, and I mean, you should have gotten the zero the first time, statistically, but the right, second yeah. time you did, and you got two, and you got passed, and that, that was the end of him. Um, and yeah, so, the, yeah. Yeah, the golems are, their resist is 13. So regular guys with swords aren't going to be able to do much. You have mm -hmm. to force them to roll a 10. But if but you roll enough there, dice, that happens. Yeah. And the golem only has the one wound. So if he takes, if he rolls a 10, he's dead. Mm -hmm. Gone. So, yeah, there is ways, there are ways to get around it. When you look at some of these units, you go... Ugh, I can't beat that. And they can they can feel invincible when you when you play against them. They can feel bad. But if you use the right, you know, combination of units and rules, there are absolutely ways to get around it. Um and you know, it just takes a little bit of creative thinking and thinking about how do I make this guy roll the dice that will cause him to fail. Um right. yeah. And again, it just takes time and experience to do it. Now you would be the guy who is more experienced than I in this game. Would you agree with that? Definitely. Every monster can be brought down if you make them roll enough saves. So you know, having a huge horde of, you know, rat men or mm -hmm. or skeletons, just your basic, you know, foot soldiers, is you throw enough in there, you could make them uh, fail a save. That's right. That's right. Now, uh, how often do you? I mean, I think that is really valuable too. If you think about it, is it's it's giving the giving the basic trooper, the, the lowly foot soldier in any given race, it gives them a role, it gives them a place, and it, you, you want to include them. You need some cheapest chips, basic troopers in this game to get the job done. Um, if only because then you have more order dice so that you don't you know, tap out when all of a sudden you, know, you lose three and you're like, oh crud, there's half my army. If you have a super right. elite force, like you need to have... Um, you need to have enough units so that when you get to half, your your army doesn't break and you don't automatically lose the game. Right. Foot soldiers are very important in this. Uh, most of my armies are 80% just regular troops. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to putting my rat men down on the table just so, yeah, I have a wall of dudes and go, yep, and there you go. And thankfully, I have different colored robes to use, so I can be like, yep, these are the plague guys, and these are the spear guys, and these are the hand weapon guys. Um, and yeah, it just, it really, I think, just having that, that it's one of the things I want to try in this game. How, how much the numbers matter? Um, because though I use infantry heavy lists, I want to see if you know, a, a wall of infantry makes a difference, especially since the rats have such low resilience. I mean, plague rats have no armor and a resistance four. So they basically, if you hit them Ouch. with a sword, I mean, all of a sudden you're resistance three, so, and you need to roll you know, under that. Oops. Dead. How big, how big of a squad can the rat guys take? Ten. Up to ten. Like everything oh, so else still in the game. 10. Still ten. Hmm. But you can take more of them. So I think it's going to be a matter of, oops. Oh, that squad's dead. Move on. 
Next one. Oop, that one's dead. Oop, move on. Um, yeah, just because, take 10 of them. Yeah, just take a bunch ten, of 10. 10-man squads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't have that many rats, and I, the idea of moving <laughs> that many models on the tabletop gives me the sweats. But, um, yeah, man, I'm looking forward to seeing what it does, uh, especially since they have some cool uh, anti-armor uh, rules, which I think will really help out, too. Well, yeah, right. I haven't looked at the rat list yet, mm. but uh, I heard it's pretty good. Yeah. It looks good. Now let's talk about some of the other lists. I mean, you've you've used Undead a lot. I've seen you've used Barbarians. Um, I know you've faced Samurai. Um, there's, I mean, what are some of the lists that you've used slash have faced and that you you know that you think are uh, noteworthy and interesting? Well, the Samurai are pretty good. My friend Andrew runs them. Um, they're an elite army, mm-hmm. so they're one of these armies that are smaller units uh, numbers, like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. They do have access to some cheap foot troops as well, but they do. Most of the time, you're going to be bringing foot samurai and some archers. Um, one of the good things about the samurai list is almost everyone can take a bow. Mm-hmm. And in a game where pins are so, ex- I'm sorry, where in a game where pins are so important, yeah, you know, throwing out pins at long range with every unit you have is is quite powerful. Yeah, uh, I've also faced uh, elves. They were pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um. Faced undead, with my undead. Oh, that would and be that interesting. Was, I think that was the only time that my undead ever lost was against another undead army. I don't mm-hmm. think they've ever, ever actually lost a game that I can think of off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't really faced. I haven't faced dwarves. I haven't faced any of the, uh, like beast men, mm-hmm. or anything like that. So or gnolls, I haven't faced them. Yeah. Uh, so orcs and, of, orcs and goblins are fun too. Um, yeah, there's just you know as you start to list armies, I'm like, oh yeah, I know what would work well against that army, and you know, orcs. What works well against that army? Dwarves. What works against that army? Goblins. And it's um, I think that uh, in smaller metas, when people have limited numbers of armies, certain armies, maybe undead, for example, might be pretty tough. But um, you know, I, I, goblins steamrolled my undead, so. Um, oh, yeah. Abs, yeah. <laughs> you just go, Ugh. So, um, yeah, I, again, I think it just comes down to different combinations and different armies doing, doing what they do. And I think it's one of the cool things about the game is because all of the army lists were written generally at the same time, even the new ones were still using the rules and, um, the statistics and the point values, um, that the original lists were, you don't have that codex creep. So everything, you know, sometimes it feels like you have a bad matchup. But if you look at the game as a whole, I think it, it balances really nicely. Um, yeah, much like the new Kings of War lists, for example, and I guess like the old Kings of War lists too, um, because they're all sort of done at once, um, or you know, they're, you have one giant core of lists, and then the other ones are added on using the exact same sort of formulas, I think you end up with a far more balanced game than one that is constantly chasing a meta. Um, which, you know, can lead to feel bads when all of a sudden the army that you've spent a year painting isn't, you know, quote unquote good anymore. Um, I I like a balanced game and I feel like this one's, you know, it's, it's, it's a version one rule set. You know, there's still a few things that might tighten up at points, but man, it's one of the best version one rule sets I've ever played. I really enjoy it. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it's very solid. It's, there's not really any obvious holes or or anything ex- to exploit. It's it's pretty tight. I haven't mm-hmm. had any issues with uh, mm-hmm. 
anyone trying to find or exploit anything. And my friend Andre that I play with, he's like the king of uh, breaking rule sets and mm -hmm. finding exploits, and he hasn't found any yet. So, right on. If he if he can't find them, then they're going to be hard to find. Yeah, exactly. Right. Now, um, what are some things I've I've sort of thrown out conversational topics at you constantly here, but let's let's throw let me throw it to you. What are some things that we haven't talked about that you really like about the game, um, or that you want to you think are noteworthy if you're mentioning it to people who you know maybe aren't as familiar or um, or just beginning? Well, I like the simplicity of it. Um, mm -hmm. It's everything's got uh, its own little part of the game magic mainly is uh it's not over powerful mm -hmm. but it can be decisive but it's not gonna destroy an army outright exactly uh, i'm happy with the way that the magic works uh, i like being able to dispel i like that you can re-roll i like you can even uh sacrifice a spirit if mm -hmm. you want to try to reel again so it gives you some extra um chances to pass spells but the spells aren't well except for one which What's uh, Peculiar Portal? Mm -hmm. That one may be the only thing in this game that I think is kind of uh, a little cheesy in that you can take your enemy's most powerful unit and just move him to the back of the board, pretty mm -hmm. much getting him out of the game. Yeah. I'm not really, I don't like, like that one. Uh, we don't use it. I just, for some reason, uh, just totally uh, nullifying one of your enemy's units like that that easily it just seems a little weird to me but yeah all the rest of the spells are really good lightning bolt is super good mm. um uh, that's probably the best spell uh, offensive spell i think but some of the lesser spells like t um aura of courage mm -hmm. that one is very handy it doesn't sound like it does much but when the game is so centered on pins the ability yeah. to remove pins with from units uh, within i think what 10 inches yeah. or of your of your uh wizard and isn't it That's 20 really, if it's really undead but yeah but it's 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 a really interesting mechanic because you can pull a certain it gives you a pool of pins sort of that you can remove and you can remove them from any or one particular unit around you so you can take yep. like three pins off here one off another unit one off another unit one off another unit so if you have been you know if you're playing an elf player for example who have a ton of longbows and you have a bunch of units with individual or two pins on them it's it's not bad for you to go cool i'm going to take all of those off now sweet um and it means that your wizard isn't doing anything else so you you are paying a cost for that but you're you're not um, your entire army isn't handicapped, and it, it gives you an answer to other people's um, plans, which I think is cool. And again, you're, you're having to make those decisions, which make for good tactical gameplay. Right. Yeah, that, that's a spell I would say it's always worth taking, just because mm -hmm. of how important pins are in this game. And it's not going uh, to scare anyone, or it's not going right. to, no one's really going to bat an eye at it they're just gonna say oh you're bringing aura of courage okay you know mm -hmm. but then when all of a sudden you lose a bunch of pins and you're back in it then they'll realize wait a minute that was aura of courage that's pretty good yeah exactly and also if if for example you have a unit that you desperately need to 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 not die and it's on you know it's one or two pins from being destroyed you can use that spell to really pull a bunch off without having to use rally um, right. Exactly. And being able to do it at a distance, which is great. Yeah. Like if your unit that you had all the pins is already activated 
and he's about to die, you can get your wizard up there. You could cast Aura of Courage, and you could remove some of them pins. Yeah, man. Now, I I initially was a little sad when I looked at this game, and I saw that it had one page of magic items, and that page is very limited. I think there's eight or ten magic items possible in the game, and they are very limited in what they can do. Um, but the more I've played the game, the more I've appreciated that I think if you had crazy magic items all over the place, um, I think you would really throw the gameplay out the window. Um, and I think that it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice way of, you know, just slightly changing the stats on maybe your warlord or on your wizard that, you know, makes them individual, gives them that character, but isn't also going to, you know, turn the game into Hero Hammer where one person's going to walk through an entire army. I think it's really cool. Um, yeah. I'm glad the more I play it that that's the case. Do you agree? I agree. Uh, you can't kid that you can't kid a unit out with super powerful um, magic weapons. It gives mm-hmm. them a slight boost, maybe a plus one on their strike value, an right. extra attack, but it's not going to break the game. Definitely. Yeah, man. Um, all right. Well, what are some other things that you uh, enjoy about the game or that you think is noteworthy? Um. So aside from magical weapons, uh, spells, well, special rules. There's tons of special rules. Um, They're all pretty good. Mm -hmm. They all make sense within the context of the game as well. There's nothing that stands out as like, well, why would this be in here? Why would halflings be able to Mm -hmm. do this or that? But but, uh, I think all the um, special rules are well thought out, and they're not overpowered. Right. Uh, this flaming wheel one, I've never actually seen that, but when I look at it, it's like, I need to get one of those. I don't even know what it looks like. But. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, <laughs> but the I think... The rules are pretty good. Yeah, and again, <laughs> I don't think they break armies, um, but they absolutely... Um, they give each army its own flavor and character, but you can give specific units within those armies that have special rules. For example, the Plague Rats um, can take choking as one of their rules, which negates armor. So all of a sudden, this unit that's super fragile um, has the ability to bypass your opponent's armor. So all of a sudden, this unit, and it makes sense thematically that they're you know burning you know poisonous incense and you know they're you know they're plague ridden rats. And all of a sudden, that you know they're like, oh, I get the feeling for what that is now. And you really gives them that flavor. Um, and gives you a reason to take them. And it, it's just cool. And every, you know, there's there's units in every army that allow you to take those special rules that really do give, you know, give your army that flavor. But those rules, as you say, don't really break the game. It's just, it's. I think it's a really well done um, set of mechanics that, that gives it the game its, its, its flavor. Once you get past the basic game and once you start digging in i think there's a lot to it i mean i think there's one that is slightly um really good but i think rick's faq'd it which was divine intervention where you can possibly take your opponent's order dice um and i think i mean there were very few models that could take that in the first place i think it was limited to maybe one or possibly two army lists but um you know listen to and because rick is so involved with this project as things pop up as problematic um, like flyers were when the first game first came out, um, Rick changed the point value for him. He he saw, oh, I, I you know, when I play tested it, it wasn't an issue. But the more that I see other people are having problems with this, no problem. And he changed the rules. He changed the points, and he changed every army list um, to reflect that. And I think that you know when you have a game designer that is so uh, that's interacting so well with the community, it really does keep the game fresh and fair and interesting. Um, yeah. 
Definitely. Yeah, it does. Like we're saying, divine intervention. I have never actually played it uh, bef- against anyone that had it before the FAQ. Mm-hmm. It's it's bad enough now. I mean, it's not bad. It's right, right. part of the game, and it's it's a exactly. fun rule. But I've fallen victim to that several times, and then I just think about, well, imagine if that was happening all over the board every turn. I mean, that would mm-hmm. be bad that would bears. pretty much cripple your army. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I guess the another thing that should be brought up is how you play the game and that comes down to the missions now there are six missions in the book uh although rick does say you can sort of adapt the game and play it how you like uh and you know like the original bolt action missions some are fantastic um some are a little less fair at times or can feel that way um i know for example one of them is um, pillage the village and that one can be very difficult to win if you're the attacker because you need to get across the table the long way to get to your opponent's village to destroy it. Uh, Meanwhile, you have to go through your opponent's army to get there. And the buildings are fairly resilient. Um, But if you, I mean, in that case, if you're the attacker, more often than not, you're more looking to cripple your opponent's army to win the game. Um, And your opponent, on the meanwhile, and while I was thinking, like, oh, does that make for a fun and interesting game? Well, your opponent has to try and, A, keep their army from being broken, um, but also to keep you off the buildings. Because if they just turtle up and let you get to the buildings, then you're definitely going to lose. So I think tactically it makes sense, even if you're looking at it going, ooh, how hard is it to kill those buildings? Well, if you ignore, you know, if you try and play in a way to um, guarantee a win... I think you're just handing that game to your opponent. Would you agree? I agree. That's pillage of village is very hard for the attackers. Pretty much your best bet is to destroy half of your opponent's army and win that way. The game we played last night, uh, I wrote both lists. So I, the undead were attacking mm-hmm. and I set them up specifically to destroy the building. So I gave them the large stone thrower, which can damage buildings. Uh, they had fiery balls, so they mm-hmm. could uh, their their warlord could light the buildings on fire. I even gave the skeleton archers fire arrows. I don't know if that's a thing, but we did it. That's just something we threw in there to give them more of a chance. Mm-hmm. And he was actually able to set two of the buildings on fire, which was pretty good. That's as farthest that anyone's ever gotten as many times as I played this mission. Uh, but still, in the end, it was it came down to routing the defending force over destroying the buildings. Right. Yeah, and I mean, the, I, I think I saw in that game that you were pointing out that sometimes war machines aren't the easiest thing to hit uh, thing, you know, objects like buildings with, um, given no. the way that they work. But I almost prefer it that they are harder to hit than easier, because if you were just smashing an opponent with, you know, stone throwers from halfway across the table... Well, you know, they they have no answer to that. I think that would feel a lot worse. Um, so I Definitely. almost prefer, you know, war machines hitting less effectively than more. And I think, I think again, that just comes down to um, good game design by Rick. So, yeah. Now, I did notice that you tend to play slightly larger games than we do. Um, I know we've been running slightly smaller, like 800, 900-point games, because um, a lot of us are building up their forces. Um, you, on the other hand, tend to play sort of 1,200-ish points um, from a lot of the games that I've seen, or like 1,100. Um, I think that, I think, is that because you want to use, quote-unquote, more of the toys, or? Yeah, get more stuff on the table. Mm-hmm. We like to get all the stuff we can on there. Um, it does take longer, but it's 
there's more options, there's more going on, there's more movement, maneuver, mm-hmm. more fighting. Um, I prefer games about, you know, a thousand or twelve hundred is about the max I would ever go. Mm-hmm. And really, the only time it gets that high is when we start including monstrosities. Yeah. I have to admit, I have been watching a lot of your battle reports with monstrosities because I want to see how they operate on the table and what an impact they have. Um, so I haven't really watched a lot of the ones with the more 1,000 point levels. Um, so I think that my question may be, now that I think about it, slightly skewed. Yeah, the uh, if you see some of the older reports we did with the monstrosities, you'll see that the... Uh, they can destroy an entire army if they can go unchecked in the enemy's backline. Yeah, yeah you just pretty, can't ignore. Pretty scary. Yeah, exactly. Um, the flying ones in particular can definitely oh. be can be can be frightening. But uh, those, yeah, flying monstrosity is probably the worst of all worlds because you can't attack it. The only thing you can do is really shoot arrows at it. But even then, they're hard to hit. They're hard to hit. Uh, they're hard to do anything against. Yeah. You have to hope that they land, attack you, and you maybe can get them to fail a save or something. Yeah, I, th- I think the best way that I've seen is to, and why another reason why um, I, I kept with fire, uh, you know, fireball or fiery balls um, as a spell is that you can, you know, you don't have to roll to hit. You're just automatically hitting them. Um, and you can get a couple of pins on them, and if you can get a couple of pins, then, you know, that, of course, creates situations where they can be then grounded, and then you can charge them. Um, ah, that's true. Good call, man. Yeah, I didn't think about that using uh, fiery balls against something flying. Yeah, I just that, that would work. Yeah, man, it's my wheelhouse. I live in fiery ball land, and so um, and I, <laughs> you know, I just started by accident and then just stayed there because I was boring and went, oh wow, this is actually really effective. Um, yeah. You know, it's, Plus it's a, fun to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I get to yell fireball um, the entire game, but yeah, look again. I think. The more you play, the more you find with this game. And it's got so many layers to it. Um, it's, it's easy to pick up. As you say, it's simple. Um, but it's got such tactical, you know, tactical depth that it can really make for an interesting game experience. Plus, it's fun, man. And I think that's really the important thing, isn't it? Oh, that's the most important thing. Right on, man. If you're having fun and not diving into the rule book every five seconds. Amen to that. That makes it more fun. Yeah, right? <laughs> All right, well, let's let's get off woe for a second here. Um, I mean, I would recommend this game, and I know you would as well. Um, but before we, I guess before we jump to anything else, are there any final thoughts you want to say for woe before I change the subject? I would agree with you that this is a great game. It doesn't get enough attention. Mm. I think it would uh, be a lot more popular if more people gave it a chance, and I'm hoping that maybe through some videos or um, mm-hmm. podcasts such as this that we can get the word out there to get more people playing. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, I end up talking to people who play other game systems, and I mention it, and people are like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, they look at me with this vague, I, I never heard of that game, look. And I go, oh, it's Rick Priestley's new game. And they'll go, oh, Rick Priestley. And you go, yes, he wrote it. And it's, it, you know, people just don't know it exists, and which I think is astonishing. Um, I mean, given that it's put out by a company like Warlord, and it's written by Rick Priestley, I'm surprised there isn't more discussion of it uh, especially in the long term, I mean, it's just such a good game. So, anyway. Well, one of the one of the things I think that is causing that is, well, first of all, the turnaround time from when they announced it and it came out was very short. Mm. And if people if people don't know the reason why, like I listened to your podcast with Rick uh, when he first talked mm-hmm. about it, and I, I was kind of under the impression maybe it was just a cash grab, you know, by uh, Warlord Games. Mm-hmm. I didn't know the full story until I listened to that podcast, and it turns out Rick had 
been playing this game on his own, just with his own circle of friends. Mm -hmm. And it's not something that was just thrown out there to make money. It's actually kind of a passion project of Rick's that Warlord just happened to pick up. Yeah. He and, offered it to Warlord because he had the contract, the standing contract with them. And they, they initially turned him down. And he right. was it wasn't until he was publishing it with someone else, he was about to sign the paperwork, that they actually went, yeah, okay, let's do that. Um, but I think it, they just never advertised it as much as you know some of their other games that have received yeah. a lot of hype because they don't make models for it. Um, it's only now right. that they're starting to sell... You know, a bunch of Lucid Eye models, um, Frostgrave models, TT Combat's um, halflings, and they're they're repackaging their samurai models from back in the day with um, Test of Honor to be Warlords of Erewhon that we're seeing, you know, momentum behind it on their website. But even then, you know, I, I would just, I, I'm definitely going to be doing some videos uh, for YouTube, and I'm glad you're doing a constant, uh, you know, stream of them. Um, because yeah, it just—it's such a good game, and I just think it just it needs more attention. Yeah, and I think if people realize that this is something that Rick had been working on for a long time, and it's not something that mm -hmm. just kind of was thrown together last minute, then it might have gotten more attention. But yeah, there's not really any way to know that unless you happen to listen to your podcast. Right. Well, again, it, it's another thing is how long. I mean, how much support has he been giving it? Unbelievable amounts. Oh, a lot. If yeah, you a knew lot. the Godfather of you know, Wargaming was, you know, put out a game as sort of his retirement passion project, to quote him. Um, right. And then he exactly. would continue to, I mean, just, I wish most games had the level of support this game has. Um, and it's just one guy. And yep. that, but because he is who he is, and he's got that wealth of knowledge, he's able to make really clever decisions that, you know, uh, change things. But he's listening to the community as well when things don't work. And it's just awesome, man. I'm Yeah. I'm just hoping, as you say, more people see it and more people start playing it because um, I'm just enjoying the hell out of it, man. I, yeah. And I'm I'm glad that we have a local group of players here that um, get together from time to time just to have casual gaming days. It's not like a tournament. It's just, you know, show up, guaranteed two to three games that you can play in a day. Um, and it gives you something to paint armies for. Um, because, you know, otherwise, if you don't have a reason, it's sometimes hard to be motivated to work on a project, right? Right. Yeah, we, I'm lucky, too, that we have a local group of guys that uh, are pretty into it. Probably maybe, I don't know, six guys, mm -hmm. maybe seven that uh, all have armies. Uh, we have a, not monthly, but maybe every couple months we get together and play. And yeah. uh, we just had a big uh, narrative event that my friend Andrew did that, uh, unfortunately, I was able to go to it because I was sick. But uh, he had a, it was basically a campaign, a one day nice. long campaign that had interlocking or interconnecting missions and mm -hmm. It's pretty cool. So he put a lot of thought on that. He did a good job on it. And uh, I I think that that's a direction this game could easily go in. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, I'd love to see uh, Rick or someone else do, you know, more missions or, you know, an actual, as you say, an actual campaign pack. I think this game would benefit from that unbelievably. So uh, the places to go in the future, right? Uh, yep. Now, Unlimited possibilities. Amen to that. Well, let's let's talk about uh, tabletop CP for a second. So, um, let's talk about. You say you're also playing uh, Chain of Command, Sharps Practice, uh, Spectre. Um, I mean, some of those games are very uh, skirmishy, smaller number of models, as in Sharps Practice, and, um, and even more so uh, Spectre. But um, I know Chain of Command and Bolt Action are also large army games. Um, are you? 
are these just the games that grab you? Is there a particular reason you've you've sort of chosen those games? Are they just your passion? Well, they're historical games. Um, so I'm a more of a history guy at uh, at heart, mm-hmm. and started with Bolt Action and found out about Chain of Command, and they're all three of those games are highly narrative. They're mm-hmm. campaign driven, and that's how I like to play. I like the missions to mean something for the next mission. I like right. the story. I like developing a characters. And the, those three games all have that. And on top of that, they're just really good rule sets and just a lot of fun to play. Nice. Yeah, man. I need to pick up Spectre. I keep looking at it and then going, yeah, no, this would be perfect for my, you know, G.I. Joe games where I'm playing, you know, 28 millimeter G.I. Joe. But, um, yeah, I just I haven't picked it up yet. There's just too many good game systems out there, man. Yeah, it's. And Spectre is one of these games. It's it's a great game, but it's I want to don't want to say it's a full time game, but you have to really know the rules well to make it flow and and, and make it uh, mm-hmm. stay fun. So you're not doing a lot of rule book diving, mm-hmm. yeah, which man. can which can really cripple a uh, the flow of a game. I'm pretty sure you know that. Oh yeah, especially if you're recorded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, man, thank you so much for coming on today, Travis. It's been, uh, as someone who's been enjoying your videos for a long time, it is a pleasure to, uh, you know, talk about a game that we both love. Um, and yeah, I'm guys, if you haven't checked out Tabletop CP, please do it. Um, because, yeah, just go to YouTube and I will uh, link one of Travis's videos through the Cast Dice Facebook page. Uh, because it is absolutely worth checking out. Um, it's just cool, man. I, I absolutely love watching you play games. You got a great attitude when you're playing, and it's just friendly, fun, and you you show the game. So yeah, big fan. And uh, if I'm hoping to do more videos like yours in the near future. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brad. Right on. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. It is a pleasure to uh, to be back on the mic. I've been away at school camp, and it is nice to be back in the saddle. Um, we do have this is a sort of crazy time of year for me as a as a teacher. It is final reports. It is school camp. It is the end of the year, both festivities and paperwork. So um, I am endeavoring to keep Cast Dice, uh, the Warlord Cast, and uh, Beyond the First Marker podcast rocking and rolling in through December. Um, but I know that uh, once January hits and I'm on vacation, we're going to get more videos. We're going to get more gameplay. We're going to get a lot more interesting content as I may, I'm able to uh, really dig in with guests, especially with those overseas, and I have more time to prep. So uh, thank you for bearing with me through the tough time of year. It gets like this every year, and I'm trying hard not to put up the uh, gone fishing sign for a couple weeks. So uh, if you bear with me, uh, we will get back to greener pastures shortly. Um, but as always, when you're playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. hope your beverages are cold. But more than anything else, we hope that you are having fun. Good night. Another day ride